Here's what's coming up on today's show. But then now all the big expenses for why they originally bought the insurance have gone away. There's no mortgage. The kids are on their own. They're already on retirement income. A lot of times it just makes sense to get rid of the cost of the life insurance. There are many factors that contribute to success, skill, good work habits, positive mental attitude, and of course, proper planning. So let's head to the drafting table and get this retirement success blueprint underway with Michael Stewart of Crystal Lake Tax and Financial. I'm your co-host, Mark Killian. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another edition of Retirement Success Blueprint with Michael Stewart and myself. And we're going to talk about going against the grain on this podcast. Being a good advisor isn't about winning a popularity contest or just saying the same thing that everyone else is saying. So we're just going to talk about best advice for individual situation and why maybe going against the grain could be a good thing in different scenarios. And of course, Mike, as always, is here with us. Mike, what's going on, buddy? How are you? I'm fantastic. Summer's wrapping up. So looking forward to the upcoming fall. That's right. Yeah, this is going to be our late August one. So I should just be just around the corner for full NFL, which will make you happy, I know. so. This is true. And a little bit of Roll Tide, too. So oh, I'm, there, I'm all okay. good. All right. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, before we jump into this topic, uh, let me ask you about this uh, CNBC article. Uh, best offense is defense. It's a little, little football theme, right, uh, yeah, that we yeah. were just talking about. And they're talking about the market. So enlighten us a little bit. Uh, yeah, what the, the focus of the article was really something that they call uh, buffered ETFs or exchange-traded funds. Okay. And what they're saying is, is there is there a way where you can kind of have, you know, have your cake and eat it too, which is how do I get some of the upside of the market, but also I'm willing to absorb some of the losses, especially in a year like this year, you know, where you know, markets at one point at the June lows were down 25 to 35%, depending on what index you're looking at. So it talks about, you know, a relatively newer product called a buffered ETF. And, you know, I don't want to really go into how to make a watch as far as, you know, how to how they do it with options and all these things. But really what it does, it says, you know, hey, if you're willing to accept some of the upside and some of the downside, maybe they'll give you 15 percent of the upside of the market if you're willing to absorb 10 or 15 percent of the downside. On my side on these, there's better strategies you can use other than a buffered ETF. There's a couple things. You do stop losses, trailing stop losses. There's a variety of other things that are a little more simplistic and a lot less costly if you truly are worried about, hey, I want to you know, draw a line in the sand on the bottom of my portfolio. The biggest problem with those kind of strategies, in theory, they sound really good. Hey, I'm willing to you know, trade some of the upside. If it goes up 25, I only get 15. But if it goes down 25, I only lose 15. That kind of sounds good. But in practice, what happens is you really have to make three different decisions. One, you know, what, what, you know, what are you buying? Two, when are you getting out? And three, when are you getting back in? So now here, you know, you hit that 15% loss or whatever the limit on that buffered ETF is, and now you still have to, you're sitting in cash, and that could have just been a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, and now it's off to the races again. You know, so you have to make three decisions to get all three of them right. What are you buying the first time? When are you getting out? And when are you getting back in? And that last part is where a lot of people really struggle. Now, we do believe that the best offense is a defense, but the defense is actually just having a balanced portfolio that's built for what you need your portfolio to do, whether that's income, whether that's long-term growth, whatever your goals specifically you happen to be, that's how you play defense. You only take the risk that you need to take. You don't need creative products in order to make that happen. Well, certainly good information there from this article. And thanks for breaking that down for us, Mike. So let's, uh, well, you know, going against the grain, I mean, so you're talking about best offense as a defense and you're giving us some highlights there. So maybe 
that's the key, I think, a lot of times for people is, is again, like I said, when I teed this up, it's not just finding the person that just always kind of says uh, what everybody else is saying, kind of going with the flow, right? I want somebody who's going to give it to me straight. If it's not working, tell me sooner than later. Let's not just kind of play along with this thing because this is serious stuff that that obviously you're dealing with people's retirement. So best advice for every individual situation seems key. And it seems like that would be something everybody should strive to do as an advisor. But yet we tend to know there's you know certainly uh, cases in industries where people just kind of go with the grain, right? Everything is going the same direction. So I got a list of stuff here where maybe you can give us some examples or talk to us about how going against the grain uh, or going against the mainstream ideas might be useful. Okay. Yep. All right. So uh, risk, let's just start right there. The appropriate amount of risk for a retiree. I mean, you could do something like a simple rule of thumb, Mike, you know, you could do like the rule of a hundred and you could do like your 60. So therefore 40% at risk and maybe just, or even like a 60, 40 portfolio, right? Just throw people in that kind of mainstream idea. But is that really the appropriate situation for each person? Yeah, I think you really need to customize it to the individual person. And, you know, we typically will call a 60-40 portfolio. And for our listeners, that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And I guarantee if over 80% 80 of the people listening, if they go check who's not working with us, their portfolio, they probably have a 60-40 portfolio, whether they're 30 or whether they're 80. And, you know, we, we call that kind of a job security portfolio for the advisor. And the reason is that if the market goes up crazy, you know, in a really good way, and you say, hey, these are pretty good gains, but I didn't get all the upside. The advisor said, well, hey, of course, how could you expect that? You only got 60% of your money in the market. But if you have a volatile year like we have here in 2022 and the market's down double digits, then you're not happy that you're down. But they say, hey, good thing we only had 60% of our money in the market. Otherwise, you would have been down more. So mm-hmm. that's why we yeah. call it a job security portfolio because basically, you know, they're not wrong no matter what happens in the world. That's, that's uh, a good but, way of looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from so we, we believe that really we measure kind of two different things in our practice. One is risk tolerance, you know, and that's where everybody just fills out and checks the box. So, you know, here's how I feel. Here's what I would do. And, you know, and it's like the Mike Tyson thing. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, yeah, that's what you would do until the portfolio is down 20, 30 percent, you know, and then all of a sudden everybody's panicking. Uh, and then there's what's called risk capacity. Risk capacity is how much risk can you afford to take? Because the goal isn't just to get you to retirement. The goal is to keep you retired. So how much risk can you afford to take? That's what we focus on, not how tolerant you think you may or may not be in good or bad markets. It's how much risk can you afford to absorb? How much volatility can you have in the portfolio so that in the event you go through years like here where the world's falling apart for part of the year, (laughs) you can still stay on track for your retirement. Yeah. And it's kind of a sliding scale too, right? Because that's going to change maybe every couple of years or whatever the case might be, depending on what's going on in in your, your world, not to mention the world, right? So oh, risk absolutely. is going to, yeah, risk is going to move. It's going to slide around. Uh, all right. Appropriate uses of life insurance. So maybe the grain here, Mike, and tell me if I'm wrong, is, you know, who needs insurance when they're over 70, right? Who needs life insurance, right? I think that's like maybe the older way of thinking. We It's kind of a middle-aged person's game, right? You want to have life insurance when you're, uh, you know, maybe you're in your 30s and your 40s and you got young kids and, you know, so on and so forth. That's kind of the normal thinking. Yeah, typically that's where life insurance comes in, especially things like, you know, there's two different types of life insurance if you had to really break it down easy. You've got term insurance, which is, you know, dirt cheap because it's only for a defined term or period of time. So you might have it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you just pay a low insurance amount. And the reason you pay a low amount for, you know, maybe you're getting a $500,000, a million dollars of coverage for, you know, a grand a year or something. And you're like, well, that's dirt cheap. Well, it is because they don't expect you to die. You know, statistically, right. the actuaries figure out you're going to still be with us. 
And chances are you'll either cancel the policy or still be alive at the end of it. So that's why it's so cheap. Kind of free money for them. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think I think under the Underwriters Magazine, ninety nine point six percent of all term policies don't get paid out. Wow. You know, so yeah, so it's a cash cow for them. But hey, it it serves its purpose of risk mitigation, specifically for what you were talking about. You know, you got a mortgage, you got young kids, you got to worry about college, you got to worry about income replacement. You know, if something happened before you get to retirement, so that's really what the purpose of term insurance just a cheap way to mitigate, you know, the what ifs of the world. Now there's permanent insurance and that gets more expensive every single year, build some cash value. So there's some, there's some value in that, but realistically for most people, permanent insurance gets sold a lot. Like when your cousin first becomes an insurance broker and then they got to call a hundred <laughs> people they know, that's typically how it works. Right. Really, really the only reason you should have permanent insurance for most in my 20 plus years of as a financial advisor here is we've already maxed out all the retirement savings vehicles. We've already done our tax planning. We've already got everything and we still have extra money that we need to do something with and we want to be tax efficient with it. So, you know, or there's a longer term life insurance need. Like I want to make sure that even if I live to 95 or 105, there's going to be X amount of dollars that's going to be left. Even if I spend my last nickel, you know, then that's where permanent insurance comes in. Well, how we approach it with clients is we just start out and say, okay, you know, let's say you're a 65 year old retiree. We're sitting down the very first time and you, you pull out these insurance policies that you had for 20 or 30 years. And I'll say, okay, we don't have a mortgage. We, you know, we've got all the, in, all, all the assets that we need to generate the income that you need. So why do we still have this insurance? You know, and then we'll just have a conversation about it. Some people have it just because they've always had it. And other people will say, well, no, because, you know, I want to make sure I leave each of my grandkids $50,000 tax free. Okay, perfect. So as long as it fits in their cash flow and their budget, that's fine. But what we normally find is people have it because they've always had it. But then now all the big expenses for why they originally bought the insurance have gone away. There's no mortgage. The kids are on their own. They're already on retirement income. A lot of times it just makes sense to get rid of the cost of the life insurance. No, great points there for sure on life insurance. And again, we're talking about going against the grain. So every situation is going to be different. And I think being open to uh, going against the grain for you know us as potential clients or whatever is probably going to be key to this whole conversation as well because if you come in expecting or just wanting the tried and true that your you know neighbor's doing that might not be the right fit for you so it may have to be something a little different because every situation is unique uh, and I'm going to combine the next two Mike because they're just really about debt so whether it's how to handle you know some types of debt or house the house mortgage or whatever the case is either way just kind of talk to me about how maybe going against the grain I, I tend to think about this one where a a lot of people say, uh, I've got, you know, 80,000 bucks, you know, left on the mortgage. I just want to pull it out of one of my accounts and get it paid off because it makes me feel better. Well, maybe the math says that is not the right move for you, but the tummy rule kicks in and you just really want to do it, right? So it kind of could go either way. Yeah, part of that, and, and this applies to all debt, or, you know, whether it's car loans, whether it's mortgage, all these kind of things really comes down to uh, sometimes it's psychological, right? And you just get that gut feeling. I just want to know that I don't have a mortgage anymore and those right, kind of things. Right. And then you have the conversation, okay, well, then how would I pay for it? You know, so am I taking money out of my IRA and 401k? And now that's going to be taxable. So to get that $80,000 to finish paying it off, I got to take $100,000 and now has that messed with my income tax bracket? Is that going to make me poor, pay more in Medicare because yeah, of what's exactly. called IRMA? So there's all these other kind of moving parts. You know, Now, it doesn't mean you couldn't accomplish it, but there might be tax-efficient ways you want to stagger it over two calendar years or something like that. The best way that we look at any kind of debt 
is really just from a cash flow perspective. So assuming we're not paying egregious, you know, credit card usury type interest rates, and maybe we we're fortunate enough to refinance that mortgage and we're, you know, getting two and a half, three and a half percent on the mortgage or yeah. something. Then what we do is we just sit down and say, okay, from a cash flow perspective, right? If we take a look at where we are, can we afford to continue to service that debt out of normal cash flow? Or is that making things too tight on a month to month basis? Because we didn't retire to pinch pennies. So it, sometimes it does make sense to take a lump sum out, you know, in a tax efficient way, pay off the debt. Cause then now for many years going forward, that's going to free up more cash flow, more spendable income for you, or you need to generate less because you're no longer paying those debts on a monthly basis. Yeah. And see, to me, that sounds like letting the math kind of dictate in some of the, some of the logic, right? But at least if nothing else, get those, get that information so then you can make the best informed decision versus just, and I get it at the end of the day, some people are just, Hey, it's my plan. It's my money. And I just want this gone. Whatever we get it done. But again, it, it may make more sense to, to go through and, and at least get all the, the mathematical options to be as efficient as possible. And I think at the end of the day, hopefully that overrides the emotion, but everybody's different. So. Yeah. And one of the ways we approach that also is to take a look at, let's say it's not going to derail their financial plan, you mm-hmm. know, even if they were to pay it off. Right. It's just to say, I'm okay with that. And the main reason why is let's say we're paying off that mortgage. So you took that $80,000 out of your, your savings, your cash account, whatever it happened to be, and you paid off the mortgage. Well, that's a lateral move from a net worth standpoint. You know, you, you didn't go take 50 people to Mexico for your retirement and the money's gone. The money's still in your home. So from, from an asset balance standpoint, it's all kind of the same. You know, so, so you, you know, you're just as wealthy as you were, whether you had the mortgage or you didn't have the mortgage, <laughs> right. you still had the same amount of assets. Well, I think some people get hung up on that too, right? And, and I know I'm going off on a tangent on this, but it's like somebody say, well, I've, I've got a $80,000, you know, sitting in this account and the mortgage is 80,000. I want to pay it off. And if the math says it's not that it's not the best move because a lot of other reasons, you still have the money. It's like, it's not like you don't have it. You could pay it if something, you know, disastrous came up. So I, I think it's just a matter, a lot of times it's the mindset and getting the information and the numbers can certainly help you make a more informed decision, which is a whole reason we do the podcast, right? Is yep, to share absolutely. information. So, all right, let's move on. So I won't keep beating this up. Uh, appropriate uses of annuities. Okay. What's the, what's going against the grain here? I mean, everybody and their brother seems like offers them. So is it going against the grain, not offering them? Or is it just saying, Hey, look, let's just not stick everybody into one. Let's make sure that it's actually the right thing if they need it. No, agreed. And annuity is just a tool. And for those out there that, you know, haven't been shown an annuity or don't know what an annuity is, anytime you hear the word annuity, it just means there's an insurance company involved somewhere. So, you know, there's about six different types of annuities and we're, for today's show, we're not going to, you know, we'll go through all those. But essentially, you want an insurance taking on some of the risk. So it's a risk of paying you a set interest rate, whether it's a risk of, you know, get some of the upside of the market with none of the downside because the way the insurance company does it or, you know, some other you know bell and whistle benefit that's out there. At the end of the day, an annuity should be offered if and when you do a financial plan and the financial plan says, you know what, you need to mitigate some of the risk a little bit and an annuity is a proper fit for it. The bigger issue is, within the industry, and a lot of times it's because they pay commissions for brokers that, you know, get commissions and stuff, is that they're sold because that's the one arrow in the quiver that the insurance agent has, right? They're like, oh, hey, you know, every an annuity fits every purpose. You need sure. income? How about an annuity? You right. need growth? How about an annuity? And the problem is it doesn't serve the purpose for the client. So annuities aren't good or bad. It's just, are they an appropriate fit in your portfolio? Okay. Uh, same conversation then for mutual funds. Uh, going against the grain might be the fact that more and more advisors are not offering these or, or don't want to use these in portfolios because there's maybe better options like an ETF. 
No, agreed. So, you know, if you go back the last 50, 60 years, you know, actively managed mutual funds have primarily been, you know, the big distribution, how most people get access to stocks and bonds and that, especially in 401ks and IRAs and these kind of things. And they used to be commission-based and now you can get them, you know, in a fee-based account, all these things. Actively managed mutual funds traditionally will have internal fees of somewhere between half and one and a half percent, plus whatever you're paying your advisor or the commission. Uh, there's things that have come out, you know, in the last few decades called exchange traded funds. Not only do they give you, they're more tax efficient, they give you more flexibility, uh, but they also have internal costs typically of somewhere between 0.1 and 0.3 on average. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you can cut your fees down, you know, by almost three quarters of a percent and, and get same exposure to whatever you're trying to do using exchange traded funds. In our firm, we tend to use, because of the size of accounts that we have, we tend to use the actual individual securities themselves. So if we need bonds, we actually go buy the individual bonds. If we need stocks, we actually build a stock portfolio because then if you own the individual securities, you also don't have any of those additional internal fees. So all you're truly paying for is the advisory fee. And on our side of it, we think you pay for the advice, not for the product. Hmm, that's a good point. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I think a lot of again the the traditionalism is just mutual funds. We all know it, right? So it's just like, well, I'm just jumping into. As somebody said said to me the other day, they said, well, you know, with the mutual funds, it's it's a pool, right? And so what what you know what's like when a public pool. So when someone does something in the pool, everyone's affected. I thought, wow, that's an interesting <laughs> way to think about that. True. <laughs> so all right, last one then, um, cash. You know, how much money to have in cash? Again, this is almost like the house to me. Some people have very emotional um, responses to how much cash they feel they need. Yeah, agreed. So uh, let's say, you know, for those still working compared to a retiree. So for those still working, three to six months of cash um, should be available. It doesn't mean it actually has to be in cash. You know, it could be in a conservative investment account in a balanced fund or something like that. But basically the equivalent of about three to six months of cash. And the rationale for that is if there was an emergency, something came up, do you have a bucket of money to go to other than, you know, start draining your retirement savings? Is there a bucket of money that, God forbid, you or your spouse lost their job and it took you three to six months to find a job that the household wouldn't be in peril or you got to go in debt or so? So for somebody working three to six months is the standard that you would normally hear. Now, for a retiree, it's different. For a retiree, let's say you're retired, maybe you're fortunate enough to have a pension, you got social security, you're taking a little income off of your investment portfolio, and that serves your purpose and covers all the bills and everything else. Well, you really don't need three to six months of living expenses because your income in retirement is not going to change, right? The pension is going to come in. Social security is going to come in. If you're taking interest and dividends off your investment, that's going to come in on a monthly or quarterly basis. So really, you've got more of a fixed income in retirement, so you don't need to have a huge cash position. Now, that being said, we have clients that live on $50,000, $60,000 a year, most of it from you know fixed income sources, and they have $150,000 in cash in the bank, You know, hardly earning anything. And because that's their what I call sleep at night number, right? They just like to know that it's there. It's not really making anything, but they have access to it. Then we have other clients that, you know, have $150,000, $200,000 of retirement income, and they keep twenty grand in the bank. Why? Because within three days, they, they know if they needed it, they could get money out of their investment accounts. You know, so it really is part psychological. You know, what's that sleep at night number? How much do you need to have in the bank in cash just so you're comfortable with the rest of your plan? And I don't argue with people whether that makes sense or not. Uh, and then it comes down to, you know, really what's the purpose of having that cash? 
Well, great conversation here about going against the grain, looking at some of the big topics and, and just thinking about this, you know, from not only just the, the normal way or the traditional way of doing things. Uh, and so as always, if you've got questions or concerns, make sure before you take any action, you're always checking with a qualified professional like Michael Stewart and his team at Crystal Lake Tax and Financial. Find them online at crystallaketax.com. That's crystallaketax.com. A lot of good tools, tips, and resources at the website. Uh, you can register or book some time with him. I should say should register, but you can get some time. I'm on his calendar, reach out to him, send him an email, whatever the case might be. And you can also drop a line to the show if you'd like as well, ask a question. And that's what we tend to wrap up with here on the podcast. So we've got Scott in Lake Forest, uh, and he says, uh, Mike, I'm interested in buying a rental property or two, but should I wait until my own mortgage is paid off before I do that? Yeah, Scott, this is a really good question, you know, and we get a little bit less now that real estate prices have popped up. But if you go back a few years, you know, when things were a little bit more reasonable on on the prices and things, you know, cash flowing real estate, as long as you're comfortable being a landlord and that uh, can, you know, can be good. You know, you just need to make sure you're prepared for everything that comes with that. You know, that if you get the midnight phone calls and somebody's toilet stopped up, you know, you're the guy, you know, or, or you're going to pay somebody, which is going to cut your cash flow. When we look for a client, anybody wanting to, especially new, invest in a rental property, Scott, what we typically do is we say, okay, let's run the math. We even have a spreadsheet we share with them on, you know, where they can figure out all these kind of metrics and stuff they need to know. But the key thing is, so if this thing sat empty for three months at a minimum, three months, would it still pay for itself with just with nine months of rent? Mm. You know, so somebody bails on their, on their, on their lease and it takes you three months to find another tenant or all of a sudden, you know, the big expense or something comes up, you know, in three months of rent would have to cover it. Would that be enough? Or would you have to personally be going into your pocket to cover those expenses? Because if it doesn't cash flow itself within the nine months, then now you're actually just buying a liability that might derail your own financial future. You know, so so there's all different math, there's different numbers and equations stuff, you know, that we can help you with, you know, or talk to, you know, your current advisor or accountant or CPA or something. But the key thing on that says, okay, one, why are you buying the rental property? You know, let's, let's say it's cash flow, it's appreciation over time. Great. Can it self-fund itself in three quarters of the year? If so, then that might actually be a good fit for you, you know, depending on how you're sourcing the purchase and that. The second part of it is, or do you just want to own real estate because you like the cash flow in general? Because you can invest in publicly traded what you call REITs, R-E-I-T's, real estate investment trusts, that'll generate a six to eight percent yield in dividends for you, and you don't even have to be the landlord, right? They go out and invest in the data centers and the commercial properties and the multifamily and these things, but you can get the cash flow without the headache of you know putting a lot of money down, as well as the headache of you know, hey, what if something goes wrong on the property? Yeah, great points for sure. Great question. Thanks so much, Scott, for submitting that in. Uh, as always, it's worth having a conversation with a finance professional if you're not working with one, or even if you are, getting a second opinion is not the worst idea either. So uh, as always, if you need some help, reach out again to Mike at his website, crystallaketax.com. That is crystallaketax.com. Thanks for hanging out with us here on Retirement Success Blueprint with Michael Stewart. We'll catch you next time. Investment advisory services offered through Sound Income Strategies, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Crystal Lake Tax and Financial and Sound Income Strategies, LLC, are not associated entities. Crystal Lake Tax and Financial is a franchise of the Retirement Income Store. The Retirement Income Store and Sound Income Strategies, LLC, are associated entities.